I think for most people who are investors and have that entrepreneur kind of mindset, they want to scale. They want to be able to buy more so they can have more cash flow, have more financial freedom. And so this is a method that allows you to do that faster. What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Shogren here with my co-host, Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. All right, what's going on, STR Nation? We are in for a treat today. Uh, today we have Mr. Yona Weiss, who's doing a special episode with us specifically around cost segregation studies. And some of you may be thinking, what the hell is a cost segregation study? Some of you may have heard of it, but you're not sure. Some of you may have done one before. Um, but specifically, this is a, an amazing strategy, especially as you scale or you get into some properties uh, that you own. And I do have some other questions around some of the other strategies that we'll get into, but this is a way to massively reduce uh, your tax bills. And Yona will go through all the details, but this is a very, very powerful strategy that the wealthy use to protect their wealth, to keep more money in their pockets. So huge shout out to Mike Riley and Yona for coordinating this while I was away in Florida last week, but we were super excited to have Yona on here to explain everything about cost eggs and how they can apply to short-term rental properties. So, Yona, you want to give everybody just, you know, your background and overview, and then we can dive right into what is a cost segregation study. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks so much, Mike and Michael, for uh, for hosting me here. It's great to be here. Uh, my background a little bit, I, I have a background in education. So I was a teacher for about 15 years. That's really what I've been doing. And, and truth be told, that's still my passion now. Uh, I'm a father of six kids, so I'm constantly teaching them. And got into real estate about five, six years ago, well, probably six at this point, doing some fix and flips. And I just wanted to learn everything there was to know about real estate. So it went from asking a good friend of mine, hey, what are you doing? Because I know he was in commercial mortgages for a while. He took me kind of under his wing, apprenticed him for a couple of years, uh, then did some residential brokerage, like I said, fix and flips. And then the past five years or so, I've been working for this company, Madison Commercial Real Estate Services, uh, the largest national uh, title agent, actually Madison Title. But at the same time, we have a one of the companies under their umbrella is called Madison Specs, and we're the largest national cost segregation company. So when I got involved with it, I really didn't know much about cost segregation back five years ago. And the truth be told, no, nor did anyone else that I spoke to. <laughs> and so, you know, talking to all of my real estate contacts that I had made over the, over the you know, first couple of years I was involved, nobody had any idea what it was. Uh, that's not true. There was a couple of people who were like, yes, this is the best thing ever. We use, uh, we use it on all our properties. And then, you know, 98% of everyone else was like, I have no idea what that is. So I found it kind of the ability to then use my teaching background coming into this company, working in the business development of the company and just like, what do we need to build the business? Um, just teach people about this, like spread the word, let people know. So that's really what I've been doing, uh, evangelizing for a better, a lack of a better word about uh, what this is and how it helps people. So that's a little background on me and happy to get into just the basics of cost segregation. Yeah, so I guess at a high level, what is a cost <clears throat> segregation? 
It is a tax uh, deduction. So it's depreciation. It's a form of depreciation. And depreciation is a tax deduction. So when you hear cost segregation, it's really no different than depreciation, which is a tax deduct income tax deduction you get when you buy a real estate property besides for your personal residence except it's a much more advanced form of that meaning instead of just taking a standard deduction you know equal every single year you're able to actually accelerate those deductions through this very complicated engineering process that we call cost segregation actually the irs calls it that uh, it used to be called component depreciation and i'll explain why they changed that in a second but essentially what we're doing is instead of just taking a lump sum of your purchase price and splitting it up equally over a 27 and a half or 39 year period which is the difference between residential and and commercial properties interesting note there short-term rentals are considered commercial from the depreciation standpoint meaning they should be depreciating on a 39 year schedule as opposed to 27 and a half like every other uh, rental property so a little parenthetical note there but instead of taking that equal deduction each year what we're able to do is identify the individual components inside of a property that depreciate faster because really it's only the structure and the structural components of a property that are supposed to depreciate over that long 27 and a half, 39 year period. But everything else, including land improvements outside, I mean, landscaping, pavement, you know, decks, you know, there's a lot of stuff when we're getting into short-term rentals. Also, anything interior that's non-structural. And so that's like a huge amount. We're talking about furnishings and, and even cabinets and countertops, flooring, you know, wall coverings, window treatments, shelving, so many different things. So we'll get into more details of what those things are. What we're going to do is uh, the IRS says those components depreciate on a five-year schedule or a 15-year schedule, and we're able to identify what those are, component depreciate them, meaning depreciate the components. We're, we're doing is segregating the cost. We're taking that cost of the purchase price and breaking that into categories. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get bigger tax deductions in the earlier years of ownership. Uh, so it's a cash flow mechanism. Love it. Yeah, so it makes sense. So again, for... Folks that are not uh, into accounting and tax, yeah, right? which I'm not so, either. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. But it's it's a way to depreciation is almost like a it's like a free deduction. Like typically a business deduction, you pay for something in cash, and then you can write that off as a deduction against your business income. So you yep. pay the the tax on the net amount. What depreciation is is the government says, listen, this building, they understand that we're going to have to do repairs and maintenance to keep this thing to make it stay consistent over time. So they're just like, you know what? Typical residential, this thing gonna last about 27 and a half years. You're going to have to do some maintenance stuff. So we'll just give you a little credit every single year towards that repairs and maintenance essentially. But what this yeah. strategy does is logically us as short-term rental operators, we invest in a lot of furniture for this. We might have $50,000 worth of furniture in a property. Is that furniture going to last in our case, 39 years? Absolutely not. Right. So they're going to shrink that down and say, yeah, you're probably going to have to replace that within five years. But 50000 just doing simple math, if it gets depreciated over five years, that's a $10,000 deduction every single year. Correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I probably didn't explain that properly. No, you're absolutely right. That's, uh, and the amazing thing is you would think it's a logical uh, thing to get this tax deduction, but really it's not. I mean, if you think about it, uh, people get confused and they hear depreciation. It's like a, it's a negative word, right? Oh no, my property's going down in value. I don't want that, right? But really what it is, is just a tax deduction based on that principle. So like you said, the IRS is giving us this business deduction. We're investing in a property. We're able to take this 
you know, cash write-off, essentially. And instead of just an equal amount, like you said, just an equal amount, like a $10,000 deduction each year, you can actually accelerate a huge portion. I'm talking 20 to 30% usually in short-term rentals, where you can get a lot of that at a faster rate. And in fact, right now, there's a current law called 100% bonus depreciation that allows you to take that whole amount of accelerated depreciation upfront in the first year. So like you said, not just that, I mean, one other thing I would just point out about short-term rental owners like yourself who are, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the goal is not to just have one property and that's it. I think for most people who are investors and have the entrepreneur kind of mindset, they want to scale. They want to be able to buy more so they can have more cash flow, have more financial freedom. And so this is a method that allows you to do that faster. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So maybe we can take a step back and what are some of the different buckets, I guess? So if we're, somebody's going to do a cost segregation study, what are some of the different components that need to be broken out as part of that study? Absolutely. So the first thing we're going to do is we always like to run a free analysis, a free estimate. So you can see ahead of time what the potential tax savings are. But when we do the actual study, uh, we're going to break down every individual component. So like I said, there's basically four categories, okay? The four main categories. And within those four categories, there are subcategories. So the four main are, one is land. Land does not depreciate. So you always have to make sure to take off a certain amount. And that depends on you know, where the property is located, what the land value is in that place. Uh, however, there are certain places where you may just own a condo. Short-term is very common where you don't actually own any land. So there's something where you can just have uh, the full amount of your purchase price going into the depreciation. So that's land, the first thing. The other three are really what we're going to depreciate, meaning we're going to take as a tax write-off. The main one is what's called structural components. And again, that's going to depreciate on a 39-year schedule. That's going to consist of the walls, roof, doors, windows. I mean, infrastructure like, you know, main plumbing and main electrical, all that stuff, foundation, anything like that, drywall. So you're thinking about structural components. That's where all that goes. And then the other two categories, which is what we're talking about here, what we are um, segregating out or separating or identifying is land improvements and personal property, okay, or tangible property. These are what the categories are called. But within them are things like land improvements can include landscaping, pavement, concrete, you know, fencing, anything outside that's not land, okay? So even if you have like a, a hot tub or a gazebo or any type of deck, uh, which are, these are very common things in short-term rentals to have, or a swimming pool, right? That concrete depreciates on a 15-year schedule and all, so do all the land improvements, which as I mentioned earlier, the benefit of that is getting a lot of value in that uh, that you can now take upfront at a, at a faster rate. And the th third category, as I mentioned, or fourth really, is the personal property. So that can include things interior that is, are non-structural. And I, I rattled a bunch off before, but really what we're looking at is a lot of furnishings and amenities, you know, appliances, equipment, furniture, cabinets, countertops even, shelving, uh, you know, and cabins, which we see a lot of them. Uh, you have the wall coverings, a lot of those wood paneling, right? That is non-structural, believe it or not. Even the flooring, like LVP or, or wooden or, or carpeting, anything, anything like that is all five-year. All this stuff depreciates on a five-year schedule. So we're going to identify what the value of all of those individual components are. And so it's an interesting process because what we're doing is, from an engineering perspective, 
think about it like this. If you built a property ground up, okay, you developed it, you know exactly what you paid for everything. You have line items, you have the construction budget and the, the documentation too. So you know exactly what to write off if you can identify which things fall into which category, okay? The the challenge, and really this is the process of conservation, is taking an existing property that you now buy this year. Say you buy a property for a million dollars. Well, guess what? 10 years ago when that was built, it maybe cost $150,000 to build, okay? Or 172,000, whatever it is. We have to now take that, and that's probably not so far off from the truth, right? <laughs> um, uh, the appreciation that's been going on uh, in a lot of markets. But what we're looking at is taking that purchase price because the great thing about depreciation, it starts over the day you buy a property, meaning your 39-year schedule or all of your 5, 15, 39-year schedule start day one when you buy the property or when you place it in service. So it's not, as I said before, this depreciation, it's not intrinsic to the property. It's not like if you bought a property, you know, that's 30 years old. Oh no, you only have nine years left of depreciate. No, it starts brand new for you based on your purchase price day one when you start. So our job is to now take that and reverse engineer the property and say, okay, well, we have all of these components and everything all together have to add back up to that million dollars, right? So it may have... Uh, cost fifty thousand dollars to you know to put in a swimming pool, but it actually may be worth more from a depreciation standpoint as part of the whole. Mm. Just selfishly as an example, right? We just yeah. bought a large property in Florida, spent several hundred thousand dollars to furnish it and build all this custom stuff in it, all these custom beds, all this all this jazz. Right. Those items do does does the depreciation start? when everything is completed? Or do you have to split that out from when I purchased the property? Or does everything start once it's placed in service? I guess is what I'm asking. So there, that's a really great question. There are two different answers because it's, right? Anything depreciates begins depreciating when it's quote unquote placed in service. Well, what does that mean? Okay, so when you buy a property, if it's rent ready and you start renting it out immediately, for example, you could now take that purchase price, whatever was spent, including everything that was in it, and now be able to depreciate all of that um, starting on that date. If at a later point you go and then furnish it, all of those new furnishings will have a different place than service date, and you can now depreciate them, You know, like I said, first year 100% bonus depreciation for all that stuff, take it as a full write-off in that first year uh, on the date that that was done. However, what it sounds like, and a lot of people have this case where you're buying a property, you're not putting it in service until everything's ready to go, right? You're, you're updating everything, you're doing renovations. At that point, it's only going to be all together, and, and those things will be added to your basis, whatever money you're spending on those furnishings will be added to, uh, and then you can place it in service at that later point, whenever it's up and ready to go. Okay. I was just spot checking my CPA because we closed in December, and I'm like, should I start firing up a cost segment? He's like, no, because technically it's not going to be in service until right. 2022, so we'll do it next year. I'm like, okay, fine. So. There you go. <laughs> One question I had, something would be really impactful for folks that have a portfolio of properties, and each year they're buying one or more properties and maybe doing a burr on one or more properties each year to kind of offset the revenue that they're getting from their existing portfolio. Do you see that a lot? That's exactly right. Yeah, 100%. Because depreciation, and this is maybe a good segue into, I don't know if this was on your list of questions, but it's really important to understand from a depreciation, from a tax deduction standpoint, how you can use these deductions. Because generally speaking, uh, 
Depreciation is what's considered a passive deduction, which can go off your Schedule E or your passive income. So rental income, real estate income is going to be in one bucket, okay? If you have a W-2 job, that's going to be a different bucket, a separate bucket. Now, there is some uh, overlap, and we're going to get into that because there's something really, really special about short-term rentals. However, generally speaking, just to answer Michael, your question is you're spot on because people want to be able to use the income they're generating this year, get a large tax deduction completely, you know, if you can reduce your taxable liability uh, as much as possible, if not to zero, uh, which in many cases even create passive losses, which means you have like a negative uh, deduction on your on your tax return. But what that means is that you'll carry that over any of those losses and you won't pay taxes. And that's the great thing about it. And so, but next year you will have relatively less depreciation from property A, but if you buy a property B in the second year, you can do the same thing. And the great thing is, is that depreciation goes into that same bucket. So all of your rental properties are gonna be treated as one in terms of your income, your revenue, and all of your depreciation is also gonna be in that same bucket as one. So if you have 10 properties, they'll all be lumped together. And then so you can take depreciation on one, do a concentration on one property and use that to offset income from, from all of them. And one thing I wanna highlight, and again, political beliefs aside, but I remember when um, Trump was going through the election and everybody wanted to see his tax returns and like how much he was actually paying. This yeah. is one of the reasons because he owns so much real estate and he keeps buying more real estate that he can just do these cost segs and this bonus depreciation to write his income down to hardly anything. Right? And this is, again, a strategy that the wealthy use so that as long as you keep acquiring properties and we get into segueing into 1031s later with, you know, all the depreciation stuff, but it's a massively powerful tool because with short-term yeah. rentals, this is a high cash flow type of business. So the more that you can keep in your pocket at the end of the year through these strategies, it will continue to pay dividends and allow you to grow your portfolio faster. Exactly. And, and like you said, with, with Trump, like those losses carry forward. So if you have a huge amount of deductions, a huge amount of losses, they'll just keep you know, following you down the road, right? Until, uh, you know, either to, until you use them up or until you sell a property, you know, those losses get released. But in many cases, well, Trump had other reasons. He had, you know, businesses that <laughs> that tanked, and so he had huge, huge loss from that. But not saying that everyone should do that. But you know, for depreciation, it's a it's a huge tool. So I want to pivot a little bit to something that you had alluded to, because one of the biggest questions that we get asked, especially from high W two earners, is how do I turn this into quote unquote active income, right? right. And so offsetting that against my active income, and I'm not putting you on the spot because you should talk to a CPA about what that entails with your 500 hours and all that stuff to stay up on the tax code. But let's just say somebody did somebody like myself or Mike, that's doing this full time. Like this is what we do and we could qualify mm -hmm. as, you know, real estate professionals. How does that play into effect then for that person? Yeah. So let's give them just for our listeners who may not be familiar with some of these terms you're throwing out there, really, really important terms. And I think everyone who is investing in real estate or planning to needs to understand these because there are some kind of set ground rules as to, as we alluded to, how much or what depreciation or what deductions can be used against what type of income. Um, so generally speaking, as I mentioned before, real estate is considered passive income. So any money that you are making, generating from any rental property is going to be considered passive income, uh, even though it's not really passive, right? As anyone can tell you, you're pretty active involved there, right? But it's considered treated whatever they, whatever they define that as passive income. Now, unless you are full-time like Mike and Mike, right? If you guys are full-time in real estate, you are considered a real estate professional 
okay? And that's a, a line you write in your occupation on your tax return that then allows you, there's kind of this special golden ticket that says, well, if you're a real estate professional, this is your full-time job. And this is actually an interesting law. Trump was actually one of the, uh, just a little tax history here. Trump was one of the, uh, you know, foregoers for passing this law back in the 90s uh, that actually allows for real estate professionals to use the deductions of depreciation and these passive losses, these passive deductions to be spilled over to active income as well. Meaning your activities are now gonna be considered active and therefore your losses should not be limited just to your passive income because this is your whole business. So that being said, unless you are a real estate professional, you are going to be limited that all of your depreciation can only be used to offset your rental income or your passive income, okay? So that's in general all types of real estate, okay? And I get this question every single day from all types of people all over. So if you're a high W-2 income earner, uh, you cannot use passive income, excuse me, passive deductions to offset your W-2 income unless you or your spouse are a real estate professional. That's the great thing. You can have a spouse doing that, uh, being full-time in real estate, and then you're good to go. You can use that against you know the other partner's W-2 income, which is a high earner. However, there is one exception. Well, there's a couple exceptions, but one main exception, which is very relevant for us today because we're talking about short-term rentals. Uh, the one exception is short-term rentals. The, the IRS has come out and in, in the passive activity rules, there are certain, I wouldn't say loopholes per se, but, but rules that allow you to treat your rental income as active even without being a real estate professional. And one of them is short-term rentals. So if the average stay, and this is really important, if your average stay in your rental is less than seven days or seven days and less, then your, uh, your activity can now be treated as active activity, which means your depreciation can now be used against that active activity. However, there's a few tests that need to pass. It's not just that the property does it. You need to pass uh, one of several, seven tests actually, that allow you to do that. And the most common one is what Michael mentioned is 500 hours. You need to be spending 500 hours a year. And again, you do not need to be a real estate professional. You can still have a full-time job, but spending 500 hours on your rental properties as well, your short-term rental properties specifically, and now your depreciation deductions. I know that's sounding like, I feel like just listening to myself, this sounds really complicated, right? <laughs> but it's not, okay? 500 hours a year, you're depreciation now becomes active, meaning you can use that against your W-2 income. The second and, and even probably even more common rule or test is you only need to spend 100 hours per year, okay? And that's on a per property basis. So it is, it's not totally, the 500 hours can be grouped together all your properties. The 100 hours, um, unless you make special elections and that's something definitely speak to your, your CPA about, but your 100 hours plus more time than anyone else. So this is challenging if you, unless you are uh, self-managing your properties, which I, you know, I hope people are doing that because that's where you're gonna make the most money out of, out of your short-term rentals. Uh, but you need to be self-managing basically more time than anyone else and 100 hours per year. So this is another thing that now, again, makes those, that income, active income, allows your depreciation deductions to be active. So this is a tool that I see a lot of high-income earners going into short-term rentals specifically because it's the only case that I'm aware of without your spouse being a real estate professional that allows you to use cost segregation um, and help to reduce your W-2 income. So to clarify, it's 500 hours for the portfolio or 100 hours per property with you spending more time than anybody else. 
per property. That's correct. Gotcha. Okay. Which but is pretty doable. Yeah, I was going to say, because there's a, there's a ton of, I'll just call it misinformation or theories out there around yeah. this specific rule in general. And we get this question all the time. And like, I was trying to dodge it because like, I'm like, you should talk to your CPA. I don't want to give you bad advice and let them guide you on this. But like, if you read through the rules, this is what they say. Because people, I've heard different things from different CPAs as well. It's like, well, if you only have one property, it might be hard to justify it. But if you have a couple, it's a little more believable that you're spending this amount of time and all these different things. But make sure that you're working with a CPA that is in this industry, just like anything. You know, some of them may specialize in real estate, some of them may not. So yeah, tax code is ever changing. So absolutely, and it's 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 incredible because you know as. Uh, dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of clients across the country, I, I deal with a lot of CPAs also. I mean, we're not a tax firm. We're not an accounting firm. We focus solely on the conservation. But the funny thing is, we're, you know, speaking to people's accountants all the time, and I'm surprised how few actually understand this. So there are obviously people who focus on real estate. There's accountants out there that know the rules, know the laws, and are able to apply them to help their clients. But uh, I'm just a little surprised at how few do know about it. So if you go back to your CBA and you tell them, hey, I listen to this podcast, and these guys were talking about passive activity rules and short-term rentals, and they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. It may be that uh, your accountant may need to go back to the tax code and look into this because it is pretty clear from uh, the many accountants and the, the research that we've done to, to see that this is so. Love it. One other question, yeah, yeah. so for folks that are in partnerships, right? So like I, one of the hotels that we have, I have two investors that are partners in that deal. How does this apply to like partnership type deals? Because I've heard again, a lot of mis a lot of information around this. So I'd love to right. get your take on how that works. Absolutely. When, when it comes to partnerships, it all is going to go back to the operating agreement. There are many different ways you can structure a deal, um, and even with regard to how to split up depreciation potentially. So there are really no uh, clear-cut guidelines because, again, if you delineate things and, and make certain structures in your operating agreement from the beginning, uh, then you can actually do uh, a slew of different things. But the most common in the most simple form, if you don't do anything and you just, let's say, have, have an LLC and you're, you know, put together that we're 50-50 partners on, on this or, you know, four partners, 25%, and everyone has an equal partnership, uh, then everyone has equal equity in the deal. The depreciation will split equally among you um, according to your percentage of equity of ownership. And then and my, so cut of that, my cut of that depreciation, because I am designated as a real estate professional, could go against my active income. But the other that, folks know because I'm the one running the deal. That's correct. So everyone in, in the case where, as we described before, uh, if they're a real estate professional, then like you are, you can do that. If you are spending 500 hours, then they'll be able to use that. If they're spending 100 hours and more time than anyone else, which is impossible because if you're spending the main time, that's not going to help. So we're going to go back and say, yes, you're the only one who's going to be able to use it against your active income. The other, uh, partners will be able to use those depreciation deductions against any of their other passive income. Or if, and in many cases, this is what happens, they'll have a negative or what's called a passive loss, which we'll just carry forward and, and use in future years. Okay. Cause we, I've noticed a lot of questions from my students that are out there doing more management deals that 
high W2 earners are like, Hey, I want to buy this place. You manage it, but I still want to get the active income deduction. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to fly, but you can talk to your CPA, but I, it's going to be really hard to justify that you're spending more time than the manager managing the property. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a difficult thing, but if it can be done, I mean, you know, in the first year, like for example, I've seen scenarios where let's say a person buys a property later in the year. And so for that tax year, you know, they start setting it up and getting all, everything going and then hand it off to a manager after that. Uh, they may be able to claim that they're spending more time uh, at that point. But generally speaking, like you said, it, it's, almost, it's not gonna fly. Okay, okay, good to know, good to know. Now- Yeah, Yona, I did have on. one question. It's actually from the mastermind. Um, we have a lot of students that are doing what's called rental arbitrage. So they rent out, let's say 20 units in an apartment complex mm -hmm. and they furnish it all. Um, and one question that they had was, could they use a cost segregation study to look at all the furniture that they put in there and write all of that off as bonus depreciation in the first year? Um, and if you've seen something like that. So the interesting thing is, I mean, depreciation is is a funny thing so it's we're looking at the cost segregation specifically what it is and as we described at the beginning is breaking down the the actual real property right the property itself from the other components okay so that's what a cost segregation would be in the scenario that you're describing where the rental arbitrage is not actually owning the property what they're doing is they're spending money on furniture and they're spending money on appliances and things like that well those that's not going to be uh bonus depreciation, it's not going to be because it's not part of the actual rental property, right? And it's not owned by the rental property. So there would be no need for a cost segregation in that case. However, they can, in many cases, use uh, just basically take that as a deduction, uh, because mm -hmm. that's an expense, they've spent the money. And that money being spent is a business expense. And so that can be taken directly uh, written off. So that's a, another thing that can be done again, not depreciated per se, but as a deduction, and there's something called a 179 deduction, which can be done for commercial properties. And, and so if the short-term rental classifies as a commercial property from that regard, then the 179 deduction will allow you to write off furniture and appliances and, and uh, equipment and things like that. So there is that thing to do. And I think it, people should be aware of that because you shouldn't be wasting, I mean, just spending money and not being able to take those deductions. Makes sense. And so worst case scenario, even if they didn't take the bonus depreciation, that equipment and furniture is already going to get appreciated over five years instead of the 39 anyway. So you don't have to separate that from the entire building. Correct. That's correct. And the same would be right. true if, um, similar to what we said earlier, where if you bought a property and you were, uh, you know, running it for a couple of years and they're like, Hey, I need to upgrade. I need to, you know, like in a hotel, this is very, very common, right? Every few years you need to, you need to turn units or you need to upgrade furniture, uh, all of that new, uh, material, all that new furnishing will be depreciating on a five-year schedule based on the time that it's placed in service at a later point. So that can be added on top of that. As well, uh, important to note is that you can actually write off the value of those things being uh, disposed of. So you can, if you know, if you're upgrading units and you're saying, well, I'm I'm getting rid of the beds and the furniture and the dressers or whatever. Well, the value of that you can actually just write off of your tax return. So you no longer going to be depreciating that value. So we've covered a lot around like the tax savings when you implement the cost seg strategy. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to make sure we covered as well was, okay, when you go to sell the property now, the whole kind of catch up 
of that depreciation unless you're doing a 1031 exchange. And we don't have to get into the nuts and bolts of like how to do a 1031 exchange, but I do want to just cover that just so people are aware of like, you're getting these deductions from depreciation. When you go to sell that property, they may come back, right? Unless you yeah. leverage like a 1031 exchange. Yeah, absolutely. So important to note, anytime that you sell a property, no matter what strategy you're using, you are subject to a tax called depreciation recapture tax. Okay. So similar to capital gain tax, and it's the best way to kind of understand it. If you make a proper, uh, excuse me, a profit on the sale of a property, you have a capital gain tax. You now are subject to a tax on the amount of profit that you made, right? So too works depreciation recapture tax. In fact, it's considered an unrealized gain, meaning it's treated the same as capital gains in terms of that it's a passive gain. And you basically, the amount of depreciation that you took over the life of ownership, you are now subject to a tax on that amount. And there are actually three different rates at, on which that's calculated. Um, some is on a, inc uh, basically a, whatever your nominal income tax rate is, that's what's going to be your, uh, the rate on certain components of that. And others will be on a capped at a 25%, similar to capital gain tax, et cetera. So it's important to note, you take more deductions up front earlier on, you're going to be subject to that tax. Now I want to clear up like you're talking about before misinformation or misnomer. I hear this going around a lot that people say, well, if you take depreciation, you do conservation, well, it's all going to be recaptured. Have you ever heard that before? It's going to be recaptured. Well, that's not true. I mean, that's, that's really a misnomer. It's not going to be recaptured, meaning the, the, I guess what people think that means is I have to pay it all back. Well, that's not true. Simply you are subject to a tax on the amount that was taken. Well, like you said, a 1031 exchange is a great strategy to actually defer that tax. So you're not paying it back if you do 1031 exchange, similar to the capital gain tax, you're deferring that recapture tax. Also, as I mentioned, it is a passive gain, similar to capital gains. And this is, there's something called what uh, some of my accountant friends like to call a lazy 1031 or 1031 light. <laughs> you know, I don't know who coined that exactly, but what it means is if you are not able to do a 1031 exchange, let's say you uh, failed it for whatever reason or, or didn't want to or couldn't find properties, what have you, and you sell a property. Well, guess what? If you buy another property in the same year as the sale, and have losses from that, from doing a conservation study, those losses can be applied to those passive gains, which means you may not be seeing any tax liability on your depreciation recapture tax if you have enough losses. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about before, those carry forward losses just stay with you and they can be used for, uh, you know, not just to offset your income, not pay income tax, but actually to offset capital gain taxes or recapture taxes down the road. That's a great, I didn't, I did not know that honestly. So if you, if you had some of those losses or those write-offs carry forward, and then you couldn't 1031 forever, you could use that to offset some of the capital gains and the recapture tax. That's exactly right. That's great. That is great. Are there any other nuances, I guess, for short-term rentals compared to any other traditional real estate, whether it's apartments or just single family homes when it comes to things. Yeah, I think the most important thing is, is that, like we mentioned, the nuances we mentioned before, the 39 years as opposed to 27 and a half, the fact that you can use them, uh, again, use it as active income, uh, active losses, 
And another thing to note is, you know, you have a lot more, you're going to have a lot more benefit from doing a cost segregation study on a short-term rental simply because a lot of times there's much more furnitures, much more uh, amenities involved, which means there's a higher uh, value in the those components as opposed to the structure. Okay, so stru again, what we're doing is breaking down the whole property into its individual components and adding everything up together. Well, if there's more value in certain components, well, that's going to be applied across the board. Uh, and so therefore, we're looking and seeing as a regular long-term rental may get you know somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of uh, of the total property allocated to these faster depreciation schedules. Short-term rentals, we're looking you know, between 20 and 30 and, and even oftentimes up to 35% or so of the total property that you can depreciate faster. So it's, it really does uh, depend on the specifics of the property, but that's in general what we've seen. Will it include things, I know we talked about like basic furniture and appliances and things like that, but would it include everything all the way down to like the linens and the utensils and the kitchenware and the pots and pans and all that that we have to like fully furnish the property is all of that included as well so you know if those things are included in the actual purchase price then they will be um you know furniture and fixtures and things like that will be included altogether. uh otherwise if it's not uh included in the original person you're just adding it later on not all of those things can be included as furnishings uh you know sheets and linens and things like that they may be things you can write off again, like a business expense. You can just write them off regardless, just as an expense, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The question always becomes like, what can be depreciated? So if it's like part of the property in a way, and so the IRS has determined things like furniture and, and fixtures and appliances and all these things have categories. But when you're looking at um, sheets and towels and beddings and all that stuff, it's not really part of the property per se. It's more what comes along with it. Gotcha. Yeah, because I've heard some misconceptions around that as well of like, oh, since it's an STR, like you have, well, you may have to depreciate that stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. Those are small dollar items in the aggregate. Yes, they add up, but I would just write those off. It's just a regular expense. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Mike, did you have any other questions for Yona on this stuff? No. This has been great. I have half a page of notes here. So <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Me too. Me too. No, I, I didn't really have any other uh any other questions for you, Yona? I mean, I know you've got a podcast now, so maybe uh, if you want to take a, a second and, and talk about what you're trying to get out to the community as well, um, I'm sure some of our listeners would be interested. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my podcast is called Weiss Advice, just like the name. Uh, I really love it. It's more than uh, it's less educational subject matter, more just getting to know the people. I'm uh, interviewing very successful people that I know and learning advice from them and learning stories and how they got started and, and things like that. So a lot of fun, uh, happy to join. And I've, uh, I actually do want to take a second to say, Michael, I, th I believe I heard you on Adam Adams creative real estate podcast about three plus years, three or four years ago. And, um, that was the first podcast I was ever interviewed on a little over four years ago. So that was a big, Move for me. And then I was like, oh, I love this. Let's listen to all the episodes. And then you were interviewing. I was like, wow, short-term rentals. This is incredible. And so I just want to shout out to that. That was a great, uh, great episode. First thing that got me kind of intrigued on short-term rentals, which I'm still uh, involved in the space and looking for some properties for myself now. But sidebar, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's what I'm doing. Beside when I don't do cost variation, spending time with my kids, do some real estate investing on the side, long-term uh, multifamily and self-storage. And like I said, getting into some short-term rentals as well. And um, I'm very, very active on, on LinkedIn. I, I love to help people just use that platform to 
build their brand and uh, create uh, awareness and just do business. It's a great networking platform. In fact, from there, I started a uh, weekly meetup. When COVID started, I started a weekly Zoom meetup just for fun, just to have people get together. You know, we needed a place to kind of get together. We couldn't do it in person. So I started one on Zoom and basically spawned off to close to two years going now. And it's a lot of fun and that's more educational. So I would love to have you, Michael, to come down and talk about short-term rentals at some point on that. We have a guest speaker every week and, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Love it. Be more than happy to. And I don't know if we got it in, but I want to make sure that we get the um, your website as well, so people can learn more about you guys and um, the services that you offer. Sure. Yeah, it's MadisonSpecs.com. Uh, you can also just go to my name, YonaWeiss.com, as well. That will lead you there and uh, everything else. So yeah, happy to help. Like I said, if anyone has a property they're interested in learning more about, we offer a free analysis upfront just to show you what the potential benefits would be. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Yuna, again, thank you so much for being here. Truly appreciate all the uh, the good you're putting out there in the world, and we will definitely be in touch. Selfishly, I will definitely be in touch once this new <laughs> unit gets live. So really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you guys for inviting me. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. Take care, everybody. Hey, STR Nation, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And in the comments, let us know what topics you want us to cover on upcoming episodes, and we'll make sure to get that in the books for you. And if you really want to learn how to launch, automate, and scale your short-term rental business, if you want to go deeper, then check out our free masterclass at strsecrets.com.